listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. We're in our Beatitudes series that we've been in uh, since the beginning of September. We're looking through each of the eight Beatitudes and actually planning to continue on past the Beatitudes through the entire Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, but the eight Beatitudes, as I've talked about, I just feel like they encapsulate the entire sermon. They encapsulate Jesus' entire life, death, resurrection, and they perfectly encapsulate the nature of God's kingdom and how that kingdom spreads. And uh, this morning, we're going to be looking together at the fourth beatitude in just a moment. I have to give you a bit of, I guess, a warning or maybe just like a heads up here at the beginning. I really need, for the first 10 minutes of this sermon, I I really need you to really zone in with me. Um, This is, out of all of the eight beatitudes, this is the trickiest one. And you'll see why in just a moment. This is a tricky beatitude if we want to understand it properly. And so in the first 10 minutes of the sermon, I need to talk to you a little bit in terms of the language of this beatitude. We're going to get a little bit into the the original or the, the Greek of Matthew's gospel. And then after we deal with language, we've got to get into a little bit of history. I don't know how many of you like history. All right, so a lot of you do. So if you like history, we're going to get into a little bit of history. So in the, those first 10 minutes, I really need you to zone in and focus with me. And then after those 10 minutes, you can just zone out. All right? <laughs> but, uh, but we're going to have a, I think this is going to be a really um, powerful word from God for us this morning. So let's look at the fourth beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 is where we find it. Let's go ahead and read it. And then we're going to pray and and jump right in. Jesus announces, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pause for a moment and really gear our hearts to hear from the Lord today. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to be with my brothers and sisters in Christ I'm so grateful that I'm not on the journey by myself, but I've got some fellow hikers who are on this trail with me. And we want to follow Jesus. We don't want to follow a counterfeit. We don't want to follow a cheap imitation. We don't want to follow just our own projection of our own interests and preferences. We want to follow Jesus unvarnished perfectly revealed. We want, we want a deeper understanding and revelation of who you are and who we are in you and what you're calling us to. And I pray that this sermon would serve that end. Right now as an act of worship, we just put aside anything that would distract us internally with our thoughts, anything we might be thinking of, or anything externally, as best we know how, we want to put that aside. Because this is a holy moment together where the Holy Spirit wants to speak to our hearts. Even through the frailty of a flawed communicator, I pray, Holy Spirit, speak deep into the core of our beings. And may your word take root, sprout, and blossom. Be fruitful for your kingdom. Let it be so in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've got our work cut out for us with this fourth beatitude. Because there's a problem with this one that we're, we're going to need to deal with. And the problem 
is with the word righteousness. Now, there's nothing wrong with the word righteousness. It's a perfectly fine word. The problem is how we hear it. It's how it sounds in our ears. Oftentimes when we hear this beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Here's how it sounds to us. We, we think what Jesus is saying is this. Blessed are those who want to be really, really spiritual, for they will be really, really spiritual. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, it's not even close to what he's saying. The word that is used here in Matthew's gospel underneath the word righteousness, it's the Greek word diakosune. Diakosune. Everybody say that with me. Diakosune. It is, it's a fun word to say. And it's a very, very important word to us in the New Testament. But diakosune is, yes, it's the Greek word for righteousness. It's also the Greek word for justice. Because in the Greek language, righteousness and justice are the same concept. They're not divorced into two concepts. They're the same, the same word, the same concept. You could just say it like this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for things to be right. They hunger and thirst for things to be made right. That's essentially what diakosune means in this context. Now, in the Hebrew language, in the language of the Old Testament, righteousness and justice are two separate words. The Hebrew word for righteousness is sedekah. It has to do with right relationship with God. The Hebrew word for justice is mishpat. It has to do with right relationship with one another, with our neighbors, with all of human society. And what's interesting is that in the Hebrew prophetic tradition, sedekah and mishpat, righteousness and justice, almost always go together. You see it over and over again in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in Amos, in Zephaniah, in so many of the prophets. What does the Lord want from us? Righteousness and justice. What is he seeking? Righteousness and justice over and over again. These two things go together. They are two sides of the same coin. In fact, that's exactly how Jesus responds one day when somebody asks him, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, well, there's two of them. I can't give you one. There's, there's two of them, and they go together. They're inextricably linked. You can't pull them apart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Righteousness. Sedaka. And love your neighbor as yourself. Mishpat. Justice. He says those two things must go together. And so in this beatitude, when Jesus, or when Matthew uses the term daikasune, Jesus would have been speaking in Aramaic, but Matthew's using Greek, you understand. But this term daikasune combines these two concepts. So what Jesus is saying is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for things to be made right in humanity's relationship with God and in humanity's relationship with itself. Blessed are those who hunger for things to be exactly the way they ought to be. Jesus says, for they will be satisfied. Amen? All right, now a little bit of history. How many of you are with me so far? Okay. A little bit of history here. 600 years before Jesus was born, there was a preaching poet by the name of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was God's prophetic mouthpiece to the nation of Judah. You remember at some point in Israel's history, they split into two kingdoms. There was Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Well, Jeremiah was God's prophetic mouthpiece to the southern kingdom of Judah where Jerusalem was the capital. 
And that was really Jeremiah's chief focus was, was in the power structures of Jerusalem and, and, and the surrounding areas and regions. And during the time that Jeremiah was ministering, the powerful upper crust of Jerusalem would go to the temple regularly and they would offer their prayers. They would offer their worship. They would offer their sacrifices on a routine basis. But once they left the temple, these same people were notorious for mistreating the least of society. They were notorious, for example, of, of exploiting their workers and manipulating and abusing the weak and the lowly of their, of their society. One of the ways we know historically this was happening is they would, um, they would give loans to poor farmers, peasant farmers, at exorbitant interest rates, knowing that they could not possibly ever pay it back. And once these peasant farmers, these desperate people, defaulted on the loan inevitably, uh, they would just foreclose on their farms and seize their land. And so that's what they would do. They would line their pockets by exploiting the weak of society, the least of society. And all the while, they're going to the temple and offering their worship and sacrifices. Well, at the same time that this was happening, Babylon, just north and just east of what we call Israel today, Babylon was becoming a formidable power. They were, they were this, it was this burgeoning empire that was poised to begin expanding and conquesting and taking over territories around it. And it would seem to any objective observer that, man, this, this foreign power could potentially pose a pretty menacing threat to the city of Jerusalem. But the powerful upper crust of Jerusalem were totally unconcerned. They said, I mean, after all, we're God's people. And we're God's nation, and we've got God's city, Jerusalem, and, and we've got God's temple. I mean, God dwells in this temple. And so they felt like as long as we offer worship, as long as we offer our sacrifices and offer our prayers, we're totally going to be safe. We're going to be untouchable. And then they would leave the temple and go right back into their abuse and mistreatment of the least of society. Well, eventually, Jeremiah has about enough of this. And one day, Jeremiah stands at one of the entrances of the Temple Mount, one of the main entrances. And as people are walking, trying to walk into the entrance of the Temple Mount, Jeremiah stands there and he begins to cry out with some words. And I want to give you a taste of what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 7. Look, look at this. Imagine hearing this. Imagine you're walking into the temple to offer your worship. And there's a guy standing at the entrance saying this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He says, if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. Verse 9. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? 
and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, watch this, become a den of robbers to you? Remember that term. So you see in what Jeremiah is saying, this connection between righteousness and justice. He's saying God wants right worship from you and right treatment of one another. And yet the, the privileged elites of Jerusalem were viewing the temple as a safe house for oppressors. And they had turned the temple into a, a machine of corruption. They believed that as long as they worshiped God and offered sacrifices and prayers, that God was going to protect them from the consequences of their mistreatment of the weak. And Jeremiah disrupts their worship. And he informs them that they are wrong. And if things don't change, disaster is going to strike. He, he tells them very graphically, look at this, verses 33 and 34. The carcasses of this people will become food for the birds and the wild animals. And there will be no one to frighten them away. Verse 34, I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness and to the voices of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate. Uh, nobody can ever accuse Jeremiah of being seeker sensitive. <laughs> if you want to grow your church, don't say stuff like this. And yet he was totally right. Just a few years later, Historically, we know this, 587 BC, Nebuchadnezzar leads the Babylonian army. They invade Jerusalem, destroy the temple, burn the city to the ground, massacre its inhabitants, and whoever happened to survive, they took them and deported them and brought them to Babylon to serve as slaves and servants. It was an earth-shaking moment that continues to reverberate across history to this day. 600 years later, another preaching prophet from Nazareth stands at the entrance of the Temple Mount. Just like their ancient counterparts, the powerful elite of the temple structures were using their positional authority to manipulate the wealth or the, 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 the income and the profits of the people around them. They were sucking up all of that for themselves. They had found ways to abuse and mistreat the weak and the lowly of their society. And what Jesus would do next would serve as the most prov provocative prophetic act of his entire ministry. It's, it's the one that would eventually get him killed. Look at what happens in Luke 19. Then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, quoting Isaiah. And watch who he quotes here. But you have made it a den of robbers. What's he doing? Jesus is reenacting the prophetic warning of Jeremiah from 600 years earlier. And he's using Jeremiah's words. And he's trying to help them understand if you don't change your ways, if you don't offer right worship coupled with right treatment of one another, Jesus warns them disaster 
is coming. And that's exactly, he's very explicit about it in verses 43 and 44. Watch this. He says, indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children with you, within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. See, just as it was before, the temple had once again become a haven for thieves. The chief religious officials had turned it into a machine of corruption for personal profit. And they assumed as long as we offer worship, as long as we offer our sacrifices and offer our prayers, God will shield us from the consequences of our unjust treatment of our society. And Jesus informs them that they are mistaken. He says, they will not leave upon you one stone upon another. And that's exactly what would happen. History tells us, just one generation later in 70 AD, the Romans this time besieged the city of Jerusalem, starve its inhabitants, completely demolish the temple, burn the city to the ground, and massacre tens of thousands of people. What is the lesson out of all of this? Jesus refuses to put his stamp of approval on acts of worship that are not coupled with right treatment of one another. No matter how passionate our worship, no matter how how heartfelt, no matter how expressive our worship is, right worship must always be paired and bound with right treatment of one another. And any system of worship that is content to ignore the cries of the hurting and the oppressed, and the broken, and the lost, and the weak of our society is completely out of touch with the heart of Jesus and his gospel message. This is something I've been pounding almost on a weekly basis since I first got here, my very first sermon. The the gospel is not just simply about how Jesus saves souls for the afterlife. Now, does Jesus save souls? Of course he does. He's in the process of saving mine. And between our own death and resurrection, yes, we are, we are um, absent from the body and present with the Lord. So I affirm these truths. I'm not taking any of that away from you. But I'm just simply telling you that's, that's not the core of the gospel announcement that the apostles proclaimed in the New Testament. The gospel is the, the announcement that the world has a new supreme ruler, a new supreme king named Jesus Christ who has won an atoning victory through his cross and resurrection. And as Paul says, that through King Jesus, even right now, God is reconciling all things in heaven and earth. See, the good news of the gospel is that, yes, the world's broken. Yes, it is beyond human repair. We look at the world today, you look at the Los Angeles Times and read the newspaper or you, you, you watch the news. Our world is fundamentally broken in so many ways through poverty, through world hunger, through rife division, through, through all homelessness right here in our backyard in Los Angeles. The world is broken, it's hurting. But the good news of the gospel is that God's not gonna kick it into the garbage can. God's not gonna leave the world in ruins. 
God intends to save it and redeem it. Through Jesus Christ, the rightful king of the world and the universe, God is making things right. And the invitation of the gospel is that you and I are given an opportunity to surrender now to King Jesus and align our lives right now with his kingdom agenda and participate with him in this great restoration reclamation project. This is the gospel. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives a prophetic glimpse of himself seated on his heavenly throne, judging the nations. And I want to just give you a, a taste of this parable. Let's look at it together. A very provocative passage, Matthew 25. He, he talks about how he's going to take the nations. He's going to separate them into one of two groups, the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. All peoples will be separated between the sheep and the goats. And here's, here's, Here's how he tells it. It says in verse 34, Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then in verse 40, look how they, they ask him, Lord, when did we do that to you? Here's what he says. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. So this is what he says to the first group, the group at his right hand, the sheep. Here's his warning to the second group, the goats. Look at what he says, verse 41. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, there are lots of interesting things that we can talk about here. There's lots of interesting images and, and points that we can discuss. I mean, it's a very provocative passage. But what I want us to focus on this morning is this, simply this. Watch this. Notice the basis for the distinction between the sheep and the goats. Notice the difference of what determines whether someone is a sheep or a goat. According to Jesus, we're just looking at the words of Jesus. We're reading the Bible here. What determines the difference between the sheep and the goats? It's not a verbal confession of faith. It's not, well, these folks over here said a sinner's prayer. These folks didn't. As important as that may be. What determines the difference between the sheep and the goats, according to Jesus... It hangs upon our treatment of the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the sick, and the prisoner. In fact, this is of such importance to Jesus that he actually personally identifies with these oft-neglected groups. He says, truly I tell you, what you've done unto the least of these who are members of my family, you've done unto me. 
Now, Christians, even us in this room, we may have all kinds of opinions on how to best deal with issues like poverty, hunger, you know, immigrants, the sick, health care, prisoners. We may have all kinds of opinions on how to best address these issues, and that's fine. But I think regardless of our opinions, what is absolutely undeniable, if we're being faithful to the Jesus of the Gospels, is that how we treat these groups of people and what we do about these types of issues is a matter of prime importance to our heavenly king. And if we are Christians, we are called to be exclusively devoted to his agenda and declare our allegiance to our heavenly king. I've been here for three months. And before, we, before our family moved here uh, to Los Angeles, we, we lived in a small town in Louisiana, South Louisiana, called Crowley. Boy, I miss my Cajun food. Oh, that's, that's one of the only things I miss. But um, small town, Crowley, Louisiana, about 13,000 people. Uh, Crowley is in one of the poorest parishes. We, in, Louisiana, in Louisiana, we call them parishes. Everybody else calls them counties. Crowley's in one of the poorest parishes in one of the poorest states of our union. And one of probably the major epidemic in Crowley is, is drug addiction, without a doubt, as it is in so many other areas. But it's especially palpable in Crowley, Louisiana. And the, and the drug addiction problem leads to all kinds of other things. And I remember where I was. It was sometime in 2015, so about six years ago. I was riding in the passenger seat of a car. I don't know who was driving. I can't remember. But I remember riding in the passenger seat of a car, and we were headed down I-10 East. See, you guys call it the 10. Everybody else in the nation calls it I-10. Just saying. But we're, we're riding down I-10 East towards Baton Rouge. And I remember sitting in the passenger seat of that car, and I was just looking out the window, and I was, uh, you know, I was looking at the trees going by, and, and this thought just naturally came to my mind. It wasn't an angel. It wasn't the voice of Charleston Heston booming from the clouds. It was just a, it was just a thought, a natural thought. And I just, just thought to myself, man, I, wouldn't it be wonderful if our church, Northside Assembly of God in Crowley, Louisiana, wouldn't it be wonderful if our church one day planted some type of residential ministry for men with life-controlling addictions. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we could actually do something, something about this epidemic in our area? And I just tucked it away in my mind. I thought, well, maybe one day, maybe in about 10 years or so, who knows, perhaps. But it just, it just came into my mind and I, and I just put it on the shelf. Very shortly after that, probably within weeks, one of our associate pastors at our church, his name is Jared, he wanted to meet with me. And so we set a time and he came to my office and we sat down and Jared proceeded to tell me, he said, Ryan, there's been something that's been on my heart and on my mind for several months. I've been praying about it. I cannot get away from it. The more I pray, the stronger this unction gets. And he said, what do you, how would you feel about the idea of maybe our church one day planting 
some type of men's residential treatment center for men with life-controlling addictions. See, Jared came out of a program like that many years ago. He, he came out of an addiction background, and that addiction was broken off of his life, and, and now he's just an incredible man of God. But he said, I just can't get, I just feel like God's birthed that in my heart, but I don't feel like I'm supposed to move somewhere. I, I feel like I'm supposed to do this right here in Crowley. What do you think? And I told him, man, I was like, <laughs> you're not going to believe this, but just the other day, I had this same thought occur to me, and I just kind of put it on the shelf. So I said, maybe God is in this, but I said, why don't we do this? Why don't we take the next month and pray about it separately and try to get some wisdom from the Lord on this, and let's come back together in about a month and let's talk about it some more. So that's what we did. We prayed about it for the next month on our own. Then we came back and had another meeting. And in that meeting, both Jared and I, evidently through our month of prayer, we both, number one, felt confirmed that this was something God was leading us to do. And secondly, both of us came to the same conclusion that if, if we're going to do this, if, if this is something that God has birthed in our hearts to do, then we're going to have to add a third person into the mix, someone who can handle the administrative work. Both of us came to that same conclusion, and both of us thought of the same person. An individual named Josh, who had come out of our church in Crowley, went to Bible College in Missouri, and was at that time in Long Island, New York, who was helping run a teen challenge center there in Long Island. And we both said, if we're going to do this, we feel like Josh is the right person to add to this. And it just so happens that Josh was coming home to Crowley in about three or four months to visit his family. So when Josh came home, we met with him. And we said, Josh, we feel like God's put it on our hearts to potentially build a ministry here to men with life-controlling addictions. Are you interested in being a part of this? Are you open to at least praying about it? He said, you guys aren't going to believe this. <laughs> but God's been dealing with me about moving back to Crowley. So you see, all of this is happening at the same time. And by this time, it's become very apparent that this was something God birthed in our hearts. The church board got behind it unanimously. And we brought Josh on staff and these two men begin working their tails off because we didn't have a penny in the bank for this. We didn't have a name for it. We didn't have a logo for it. Nothing. Just a dream in our hearts. And those guys went to work, sold thousands and thousands of barbecue hamburgers, put on an annual 5K, did all kinds of things. And, and, and we start taking in, you know, a couple, three, four men at a time. We, we, we end up purchasing these little pods that they can stay in. And then along the journey, about a year or two into it, somebody in our city who knew, who knew about what we were doing approached us and said, I've got this building right in the middle of our city. And he said, I'm going to sell you this building and we're not going to go through the banks. You just figure out whatever you think it's worth. Huge building. You just tell me what you think it's worth. No down payment, no interest rate. Pay me whatever you think you can pay in a month. If you run across a problem, if you feel like you can't meet your payment, we'll work it out. But he said, I just feel God's put it in my heart. God wants you to be in this building. So we acquire this building, invest money into it, turn it into a thriving thrift store. And then three or four years later, now we've got three thrift stores and within the last year that I, um, just before I moved here, within a few months before I moved here, 
we, there was this huge facility just north of our city that can house 70 to 80 men that we bought pennies on a dollar cash. And now at this time, there's 45 men in the program. And it's just booming. It's thriving. And you see, this wasn't the product of men getting together saying, hey, we got to have some type of vision. Let's get a vision together. Let's try to strategically think about what we can do. No, it started with a spirit birth dream in our hearts. It started actually with men who are willing to say, I'm willing to ache and yearn and hunger for things to be made right. Things are broken in our city. Things are, people are hurting. Families are being split apart. There's got to be something. And it started with that ache, with that hunger, with that craving. And then God gave us the vision. And then came the hard work and the strategic thinking. See, that's how it works. What might God want to do here at Village Church? Who knows? But I'm going to listen. And before I listen, I'm going to be willing to ache and yearn and hunger and thirst. When I look at the homeless epidemic, when I see the poverty around Los Angeles, when I see hurting people, I'm going to, I'm going to feel God's ache over that. And maybe our little church can't solve all of the problems of Los Angeles. I know we cannot. We can't even solve all of the problems on this city block, right? But we can do something because we're the hands and feet of Jesus, and it starts by being willing to feel God's pain, to hunger and thirst and ache for things to be made right, and then being willing to listen. Because if we're willing to listen to God's direction, God will give us an audacious dream that we cannot get away from to the point where we've got to do something. Because those who are being formed by the fourth beatitude refuse to submit to the dictatorship of the status quo. And they dare to, to dream and think and create ways that are solutions rather than just shrug our shoulders in passive resignation. Oh, one day when Jesus comes back, he'll fix it all. God will fix the homelessness situation. One day when Jesus comes, there's not going to be any more poverty. That's, that's when it'll all get fixed. But until then, I mean, that's just the way things are going to be. I mean, think about it. Is that the way that Christians should have been talking in the 1850s about slavery? Well, you know, yeah, we've got slavery, and it's not, it's not the best situation. I'll grant you that. But hey, it's just the way things are right now. And one day when Jesus comes back, he'll eliminate slavery. He'll make it all right. But until then, this is just the way things got to be. Is that the way people ought to have been talking? Because I'll tell you something, that's exactly how many, many Christians and pastors and churches were talking. They were like, slavery's in the Bible. Yeah, it's in the Bible. God knew about it. Evidently, God wasn't so worked up about it. So yeah, one day when Jesus comes back, he'll fix it all. But right now, we'll, we're just going to have slavery. <laughs> now, of course, you and I, we look back from our vantage point, and we look back at all of that, and every person here understands and agrees somebody had to do something, and thank God they did. Thank God there were people who craved for things to be made right, and they did something about it. Amen? But it's easy to identify it 170 years ago. What you have to do is to be able to and be willing to look within your own generation and identify those problems and say, this is wrong and this needs to be addressed right here and right now. 
and not be one of those yahoos in the 1850s saying, well, this is just the way the world's going to be. Well, you know, this poverty that we have in Los Angeles, this homeless epidemic that we have in Los Angeles, I mean, it's just the way things are. And one day Jesus will come back. He'll get rid of all of that. He'll, he'll make it all right. But right now, until then, there's just nothing we can do. It's just the way things got to be. Come on, break out of that. Don't let the, the beast of our culture steal your imagination and say, you know what, I... I refuse to accept that this is God's will for the earth right now. And I dare to believe that things can be different. I dare to believe that there's a better way. There's another way. And even if I can't believe it, at the very least, I'm going to yearn and I'm going to ache and I'm going to hurt over the pain and the brokenness of the world. I'm going to hunger and thirst and crave for things to be made right. And God says, good, because you're going to be satisfied when the kingdom of God comes. And don't fall into the trap of believing it's all or nothing. Yes, one day when Jesus returns, the kingdom of God is gonna come in complete fulfillment. And he's gonna right every wrong completely. But what did Jesus announce in his very first sermon in the Gospel of Mark when he began his ministry? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand rushing into the presence. Even now, the kingdom is growing and expanding, the, expanding in the earth. The only question is, will you and I be willing to participate in it? Are we willing to participate in the kingdom of God and what God is doing? Are we willing to participate in the life of the age to come, which will go on for all of eternity? So what do we do? You ache, you yearn, and you refuse to submit to the idea that the way things are are okay. You dare to believe that the world can be changed. You dare to believe that the church can make disciples of the nations. And you begin by praying, just what we pray at the end of every service, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, thy agenda, thy government, thy politics, thy vision for the world, Come on earth as it is in heaven. When do we want that to happen? Now. And then, wherever you go in your little sphere of influence, wherever you go, make sure the kingdom of God comes. When you see someone who's hurting, somebody who's broken, who's somebody that's, somebody that's weak and lost, you do the best you can under God's spirit to help them. And may the gospel come to them. May the kingdom of God come to them. And you lift them up and help them in the name of Jesus. And then together, we work together and we partner with organizations like World Vision and Gleanings. And some of these fantastic organizations that are making a difference, a real difference around the world. And we do what we can to partner with these types of organizations to make a large-scale difference. And I realize to many people on the outside, they may look at that and, and say, well, that's just some small thing. But folks, that's how the world is changed, by people doing one little thing at a time. I want Daniel to come to the platform. I'm going to have the choir come in just a moment. Just stay seated. But, you know, a couple months ago, we, we had some brainstorming sessions that so many of you were a part of. And um, we brainstormed ways that we can make a difference in our community, ways that we can serve and extend 
the ministry of Jesus in our community. And so many of you were a part of that. We, I had lists, I had papers, stacks of papers of just ideas that had been written down. And over these last couple months, there's been a small team of people that have been working on fleshing out some of these ideas and putting some things together, some plans. And next week, in our announcements, we're going to give you kind of over the next three or four months, we're going to give you some opportunities besides what you've already known about. You already know about Operation Christmas Child and the Children's Hunger Fund that we're a part of. And there's going to be many other things that we're going to do to, to touch this community. But my invitation to you this morning is throughout this week, let this beatitude just sit with you. Let it be on your heart. Let it be on your mind. And ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, what, what craving for righteousness do you want to put in my heart? How can I be a part of the solution? How can I participate in your kingdom? You know, at Northside and Crowley, it was, we started this men's center that broke these addictions and discipled these men and trained them in work skills that placed them in a job that returned them into being productive citizens for our society. Is that what we're going to do here? Probably not. I don't know what the Lord wants to do, but I just know I want to be listening. And I want to be just audacious enough to say, hey, I'm saying yes, and I want to participate. But sometimes it just starts by getting our hands dirty, and that's what we're going to be doing over these next few months. But it begins with that ache. It begins with that hunger and thirst that's formed in us in prayer. Blessed are those who ache and hunger for things to be made right, for they will find immense satisfaction wherever the kingdom of God comes. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.